Well, welcome to church. So good to be together today. If this is your first time at Scent Church, I pray that you would feel warmly welcomed here this morning. I'm thrilled that you would take time out of your busy week. I know you've got a lot going on uh, to come here and give us an hour, and sometimes an hour and 15, sometimes an hour and 20, I'm sorry, but, but give us an hour plus some of your week. I'd just like to say, too, that I'd love the opportunity to meet you after service if you do decide to stick around. And the heartbeat of our church is that three things would happen every time we gather, whether that be in a one-on-one setting, in small groups, or as a corporate body. We pray that three things would happen. One, we would encounter God. Two, we'd become like Jesus. And three, we'd be sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. These three desires shape everything we do. So I pray that everything that happens through this message would serve these purposes. I pray that through this message that an authentic meeting with God would happen this morning. Not just us hearing some more Bible knowledge or anything like that, but an authentic meeting with God. I pray that each of us would be pushed to grow closer to Jesus and become more like him. And finally, I pray that as we walk out these doors today, that the Holy Spirit would send us out in his power and we would go out to our community and reach people with the love of Jesus. That's what I'm praying this morning. On January 9th of 2007, the first iPhone was introduced. And Steve Jobs, he came out on this stage, I watched the clip this week, and you can just see he knows that this is a big deal. And he says this, he says, this is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. That's an understatement. <laughs> he went on to explain how the iPhone would have music playing capabilities. It would be able to, or to be an actual good browser for the internet. There were some phones that had browsers back then, but man, those were rough. I remember trying to search stuff. It'd take like hours. It also said it'd be a phone at the same time. And since that day, the iPhone has changed the world. It's, it's revolutionized the way we listen to music. I remember I used to have my phone and my iPod in my pocket. And it was like so thick in here. I remember carrying both of those around. Now it's in one device. Praise the Lord. It changed the way we use the internet. It changed the way we take pictures. It even pioneered the app store. And between 2007 and 2019, 1.5 billion iPhones were sold. And around 50% of people in the United States have an iPhone. And the iPhone and other phones like it have no doubt been a vehicle through which our world has become as digitally connected as it is today. I just got a notification right before I came up here uh, that my screen time was up by 62% this week. What the heck happened this week? <laughs> I got bored, obviously, but I, I saw one study that, actually, I think my daughter watched Disney Plus. That's why. We're blaming that. Okay, so anyways, I saw one study this week that said 13% of millennials spend over 12 hours a day on their phones. Whoa. If that's you, we're praying for deliverance after service, okay? <laughs> but, but most of this can be traced back to January 9th of 2007 when Steve Jobs made that announcement. And like the launch of the iPhone, there are days and events in history that just change everything for better or for worse. I think of Pearl Harbor. I think of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I think of 9-11. I also think of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the day the first man landed on the moon, and the day that the Berlin Wall fell. And likewise, there are days and moments in our personal lives that change everything. For me, I think of the day I started college. I think of the day I met my wife, Emily, which was just a few days after I started college. And I was like, hallelujah. I think of the day of our wedding. I think of the birthdays of my two children and the day we launched this church. And for you, it may be any number of days or events that have changed your life. At the beginning of the New Testament, we're given four ancient biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. And these are what we know as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these Gospels suggest that the most important event of human history was the life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who was named Jesus. And they suggest that human history hinges on this man's life. 
And not only that, but they suggest that the most important thing we can do is trust in this Jesus and allow him to be the king of our lives. With that said, we are beginning a new sermon series called The Gospel of Mark. It's gonna take us through each verse of this book, each and every verse. And, and this may take us a year or two to get through. We're gonna get old by the time this is done, but I'm excited to go on the journey with you. We will take some breaks along the way for some different special sermon series, so it's not gonna be straight through. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter one. The Gospel of Mark was the first gospel written after Jesus left the earth. And when the other gospel writers wrote their gospels, they were aware of Mark and they actually used Mark to help them write their gospels. That's why you see repeated stories. They actually used Mark to help them, specifically Matthew and Luke. It was written by a Jewish Christian named Mark who, who likely lived in a Roman city. And he wrote the gospel for an audience of Gentile or non-Jewish Christians who also lived in Rome. It was likely written between 65 and 70 AD, just 35 to 40 years after Jesus left the earth. So this would be like someone today writing about events that happened in 1985. That's how close it was to Jesus' life. And we have sources dating from the second century that indicate that the gospel was written by an associate of Peter who was Jesus' closest disciples. Irenaeus, who was an early Christian writer, believed that Mark wrote down what Peter preached. And he wrote down what he remembered and the early Christians had confidence in Mark and they believed that he was careful not to leave important things out or say anything false about Jesus. And Mark lightly, or likely did not meet Jesus in the flesh himself, but was an early convert after Jesus left the earth. And most believe he was John Mark, who's a man we meet in the book of Acts, who went on Paul's missionary journey. Well, his first missionary journey, he actually got left behind on a different one because he was being scared. So that's another conversation. But, but he likely wrote this gospel during a season of intense persecution. So 65 to 70 AD was a season of intense persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. Actually, Rome burned and they blamed it on Christians when Nero tried to blame the Christians. And Mark would have, or would have written it partially as an encouragement to those Christians who were suffering. He wanted to remind them of the authority and the power of Jesus over dark forces and death. In the time that Jesus lived, so the time that Mark was writing about, which is around 30 AD, was a time when the Jewish people, and specifically the working class Jewish people, were being marginalized. They were being oppressed by Rome, and their expectations were growing that God was going to send them a Messiah to deliver them from their oppression. So the story that Mark tells of Jesus happens in this context of oppression, and he writes to a people who were also experiencing oppression. It's in this context that we get to verse one. It says this. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, and that's it. All right, let's pray over this this morning. So Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, Mark. We thank you for John Mark, who had the courage to write this gospel in a hostile environment at threat of death. He, he wrote this gospel and he penned these powerful words in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Lord, we pray that today that this gospel would jump off the pages and into our heart, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand what you want to say through it. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the first sermon title of potentially a 60-week series is this, The King We Need. Okay, so Mark, he, he flies out of the gates with an open proclamation of who his biography is about and what his role is. It's about a man named Jesus who is king 
and son of God. He is the king that humanity has longed for. He is the king we need. And I believe that Mark, in this little verse, is trying to make at least three points about who Jesus is. Right out of the gates, he's trying to tell us who this man is. And he starts by saying, the beginning of, the beginning of. So the first thing I think he wants us to know is Jesus is the new beginning. Okay, the very first word of, of Mark in the Greek is archab, which means beginning. And this is the word that the Greek version of Genesis used as well uh, to start off the book of Genesis. And, and many scholars believe that Mark strategically places this word right there in the beginning to hearken back to the first book of the Bible, which again is Genesis. He's trying to connect the coming of Jesus to the beginning of the world in terms of importance. If Genesis is about the creation of the world, the story of Jesus is about the recreation of the world. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the dawning of a new age. And the connection with creation is really carried throughout the first pages of Mark. If you jump down in your Bibles to verse 10, you see that the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And, and when we read that as modern readers, we don't think much of it because we've always heard of the Holy Spirit being or being likened to a dove. But for the ancient reader, this was striking. The only place that the spirit was referred to as a dove was in the Targum, which was the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus spoke Aramaic, the, or the Jewish people spoke Aramaic. So this is the Bible they would have read. And, and they translated Genesis 1-2 in this way. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. Okay, so by calling the Spirit a dove, which again, only one time was he called a dove, and that was here in verse 2 of Genesis 1, Mark is trying to point back to creation. And he continues doing this. He continues connecting Jesus with creation throughout these first pages. In verse 12 and 13, we see that Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And again, we're going to look at these texts a little bit more later, but, but I just want to preview it. He's, he's driven into the wilderness by the devil. And this mirrors Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are tempted in the Garden of Eden by Satan to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they gave in to the devil, and they ushered in death and evil. But the difference between Adam and Jesus is Jesus did not give in to temptation. He defeats Satan in the wilderness and later on the cross and through his resurrection. So Mark, he's repeatedly connecting his gospel with the book of Genesis and creation. So, so one Bible scholar said this. He said, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And another scholar said this. He said, the main thing that Mark gets us to do in this opening verse is to sense the shock of the new thing that God has done. Okay, so Mark is signaling that his gospel that he's about to share with us is the start of something new and quite remarkable. It's something that's as important as the very first beginning in creation. Okay, so for me, when I think about new beginnings, I can't help but think of the feeling I had when my daughter Jane was born. I remember thinking, what did I get myself into? I picked her up, I held her for the first time, I sat in the rocking chair and I looked at her and tears began to fill my eyes as I realized my life was gonna change forever. I remember just thinking, everything is different now. And there are times even now where I'll see her running around the house and she'll do something different or she'll say something. I'm like, how do you know how to say that? Don't say that again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, she'll learn something new and I'll think, holy cow, look at the new thing that God is doing in her life each and every day and tears will begin to fill my eyes again. In the same way, in these opening words of Mark, Mark, 
or he wants us to understand that the gospel of Jesus is a new beginning that's going to change everything. He connects it to creation that should, or to show that, that recreation and a restoration of all things is at hand. While the first humans brought sin and death, Jesus is bringing restoration in life. He is the beginning of a new age. Everything is different now. He proceeds to tell us what the new beginning entails. Okay, so he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. So the second thing I want you to write down today is Jesus is gospel. Jesus is gospel. Okay, so in the Greek, gospel is the word euangelion. And and this word literally means good news. At the time, this word was not used as a genre for literature like we know now with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, Mark was kind of the one who who initiated that by writing this gospel. So instead of you and and Gelion being a genre of literature, it was actually more of a political word at the time. It was used in the Roman Empire in connection with military and political victories. If a new emperor was put on the throne or a decisive victory was won, a messenger would go out and herald it as good news or gospel. For example, if the Romans, they went off and they and they want to battle in some distant land, they would send a messenger to tell people the euangelion, the good news, we have won. It's also used in connection with the birthday of emperors. Okay, there's actually an inscription on a stone that was recovered from an ancient Greek city from 9 BC that says that Caesar Augustus's birthday was the beginning of a euangelion. It's the beginning of gospel when Caesar was born. Gospel was almost always connected to the emperor and the advancement of the empire. So Mark, he's trying to make a point here. Good news is not found in the emperor. It's not found in the empire. It's found in Jesus. But this word wasn't just political. There were connections in the Old Testament, just a few connections in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, gospel is used to signal that God is finally saving the world. It signals the ushering in of peace and the release of God's people from oppression. It says this in Isaiah 52 verse 7. This is how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel or brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay, so Isaiah was pointing to when God would finally restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. Because Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God needed to rescue and restore the world. And he began this mission by calling a man named Abraham who we read about in Genesis 12 all the way through, I believe it's, well, I don't remember actually, I'll be honest with you. It's somewhere in the, in the 30s of Genesis, so I didn't put it in my notes. Okay, bear with me. Okay, so anyways, he calls Abraham to follow him and become the father of a great nation that would become the nation of Israel. And God's hope for Israel was that they would follow him as a people with their whole hearts and they would keep his laws. And as they did this, they would become uh, the ideal humanity in the world And they would be a light to the nations. As they follow God, the world would see it and it would signal to the world that covenant relationship with God, right relationship with God is possible. As they saw Israel being a people who truly loved God, they would be compelled to turn to him. That was God's hope through Abraham and through Israel. But Israel utterly failed to obey God and love him, and thereby failed to be a light to the nations. God needed to come to the world himself to be the personification of good news, the personification of gospel. The faithful Israelite Jesus, who truly loved God with his whole heart, needed to come. Jesus is the signal that the hope of Isaiah 52 is not lost. Gospel had come in a person. And when, 
And when Mark begins his gospel by saying that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ and the Son of God, he's making a bold statement that says the restoration of all things is at hand. I love bringing good news to my house. I love bringing gospel to my house. There are at least three things in my house that are gospel. One of it, and one of them is we are going swimming today. A second thing is we're going to the park, which I know if we're going to the park, we're not coming home at all until it's dark, and I pulled her off the, off the slide. Or if we're getting ice cream, if I say those things, those are, are good news, and, and my daughter's entire mood begins to change. These gospels that I can preach in my house can change the whole course of our days in a moment. And when Mark begins his book by calling it the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, he's telling the reader that, that what he's about to share is of tremendous importance and it should change the course of your entire life. He's saying Caesar can pretend that his life is gospel, but we know that he's just a man and he cannot come through on what he promises. Unlike Caesar, Jesus is truly gospel. And you can replace Caesar's name with anything. Unlike you know, this politician, unlike this hope for your life, unlike anything, those things are not going to be gospel, but, but Jesus is gospel. His life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension to heaven is good news. With that in mind, Mark lays out why Jesus' story is gospel with the rest of this first verse, when he says that Jesus is the Christ and he's the Son of God. He's telling us ahead of time why this story is gospel. It's gospel because the king we've longed for has finally come. The third point and the final one, Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. Okay, the reason that the story of Jesus is gospel is because the long-awaited Messiah has finally come. The long-awaited Son of God has come in the flesh. When Mark calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, he's not giving us his last name. Christ is not a last name, but it's a title coming from the Greek word Christos, which which means Messiah, or quite literally, anointed royal figure, okay? So he's actually saying Jesus the Christ. He's telling us that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. He is the deliverer king who would free Israel from oppression and from bondage to sin. In the Old Testament, it is full of messianic expectations. Israel longs for a king all throughout the Old Testament, a king who would administer God's rule on the earth and rescue them from their oppressors. And we see one of these prophecies in Isaiah chapter 11. It says this in verse one. It says, "'Those shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse.'" Okay, so Jesse's David's dad. So he's saying there's gonna come someone who's a descendant of David, "'and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, "'and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or, dis or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Okay, so this king, he would rule with the spirit of God as his guide. He would rule with wisdom and understanding and in the fear of God. While earthly kings failed, this divine king would not. And Mark, he doesn't only call Jesus the Christ, but he calls him the Son of God, which is a more complete title for him that's going to be attributed to Jesus throughout key points in his journey throughout the Gospel of Mark. The title Son of God is a loaded title that is rooted in the Old Testament. By calling him the Son of God, he's making a claim of divinity. He's saying Jesus is not just another man. In 2 Samuel 7, so back to the Old Testament, God promises David, so King David, that he will have a son whose kingdom will be established forever. And this son will have a unique father-son relationship to God. 
It says this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. It says, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 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 Sorry, I had to do that. Just wake you up a little bit. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Okay, so... He had promised David, he said, you're going to have a son who's going to be, or have this unique relationship with me, who's going to rule rightly, and his throne is going to last forever. But just as the people of Israel failed to be a light to the world, the Davidic line of kings also failed to, or to live in this covenant relationship with God. I mean, years and years passed, hundreds of years. And as the monarchy failed in this, the idea of a son of God coming to rule began to be tied with these, these messianic expectations that we see in Isaiah chapter 11. So the Messiah would be God's son himself, who would be the redeemer and the king of Israel in the world. At the beginning of the gospel, or Mark is showing his cards right away. Jesus is the savior king. He is God's true son. He will love God with his whole heart. He will keep, or keep God's laws and he will become the king we need. What's interesting though, is as the gospel unfolds, we'll see that he doesn't become king in the way that the Israelites expected him to. You see, the Israelites, they expected him to come and, and overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom here on earth. And they expected him to seize power and, and push back all the oppressors through sheer force and grit. And when Jesus' disciples realize that this isn't what Jesus came to do, it confuses them. It upsets them. They're like, we thought you were going to sack Rome and set up a kingdom here and now. And the first time that the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah is in Mark 8. And Jesus explains what this means in verse 31. This is a very interesting exchange. He says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, again, Mark's buddy, who was Jesus' closest apostle, took him aside. Just imagine this scenario, taking the Son of God aside and begins to rebuke him. Thank you, Peter. I didn't know what I was going to do without you. Thank you for rebuking me. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter back. It's like a double rebuke, like coming back at him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ooh, we could hang out there for a while, but, but we'll get to that in 2025. Okay, so, <laughs> okay, so what they failed to realize is that Jesus wasn't going to be Messiah or son of God through defeating Israel's foreign oppressors. But he would be Messiah and son of God through suffering. And this suffering would make the restoration of the world possible. He was not only going to fulfill Isaiah 11, but he would also fulfill Isaiah 53, where a servant suffers for his people. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. In fact, the first time, this is amazing, guys, the first time that a human being confesses that Jesus is the son of God is right after he dies on the cross. He hasn't risen yet, he's dead. In Mark 15, 39, it says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And this isn't a Jew. This isn't someone who really understood the Old Testament. This was a Gentile Roman guard. He was an agent of the empire. And when he saw Jesus die, when he saw Jesus take on the sins of the world, he realized that this was the son of God in the flesh. 
Jesus was revealed to be the true son of God, not through force, but through his death. He was not on a worldly mission to deal with worldly oppressors, but he was on a heavenly mission to deal with demonic forces and with our sin. He had come to set things right that had went so wrong in the Garden of Eden. It's staggering that a Roman guard would confess this. Confessing Jesus as the son of God was tantamount to treason. In Rome, the sons of God were the emperors. In fact, Roman coins from that time had engravings of Caesar Augustus on it. And it says, Divi Filius, which means son of God. It says on the coin that that Caesar Augustus is the son of God. In the Roman world, the emperor was the son of God. He was the divine one. The emperor was the one who bridged the gap between the gods and man. But Mark is saying that Caesar is not the son of God. And this is at a time when Christians were being slaughtered for their faith or being persecuted for their faith. This was a dangerous thing for one, the centurion to say in 33 AD or so, and two, for Mark to write down in 65 to 70 AD. This was dangerous. It's no wonder that an estimated 10 million Christians were killed in the first few hundred years of the church in a time where there was only 60 to 70 million people living on earth at any given time. This gospel that we're about to read was dangerous, but Mark thought that it was so important that he would write it down even in the midst of danger. Mark writes this gospel with an urgent tone and what he's about to say is life or death and it's worth giving everything for. He had to get the message out that the Messiah, the Son of God, had finally come and he had come in a way that we did not expect. He had not come to prop himself up or make people serve him. In Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many He had come to lay down his life for the world so that they could have right relationship with the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Has anyone seen the Marvel movies in this room? I'm sure many people have, especially, yeah, I think most people. Okay, so I love the Marvel movies. And one of the fascinating storylines that's being continued currently on Disney+, Plus. if you haven't seen it yet, there's only three episodes out, but it's the story of Loki, who's one of the sons of the kings of Asgard. And Loki is obsessed with becoming a king. It drives everything he does. He's obsessed with making people serve him. He actually has has led himself to believe that if he becomes king and if people just serve him, then they will be happy. But he doesn't do it through trying to earn people's love. He doesn't do it through trying to earn their respect or gaining influence with them. Instead, he does it through sheer force of the will. In the same way, the Roman emperors who would, would often seize power by force or through being the son of an emperor who probably seized power by force. But Jesus of Nazareth is different. He is the one true son of God. He doesn't need to prove it. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the answer to the fall in the Garden of Eden. He is the answer to Israel's failure. He is the answer to evil. But the way he gets there is the way of love. It's the way of humbling himself. It's the way of sacrifice. I can't wait to see how this story unfolds as we jump into it. But the main idea this morning is this. Jesus is the king we need. Jesus is the king we need. He's the one we've been waiting for. At this point, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with me? It's a lot of interesting facts about the Roman Empire. You know, Jesus, he's important. What does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with your life. It's actually the thing that matters most, what you do with this gospel, what you do with Jesus is the most important thing you will ever do. It is the most important thing. It's not a side thing. 
It's not a, okay, maybe I can go to church a little bit and you know, have the Jesus over here because I want to get into heaven. No, it is everything. It's the most important decision you will ever make. What you do with Jesus determines everything else in your life. It determines the trajectory of your eternity, not just your eternity though, but actually your earthly life as well. If you get that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God and you actually let him rule in your life, it will change everything. Jesus being the new beginning means that if you trust in him, your life can be renewed. Because he has come to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve, you don't have to be chained to your mistakes. You don't have to be chained to your past. Jesus is the new beginning. He is the recreation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul pens these words. This was probably about 20 years after Jesus lived, about 10 years or so before Mark was written. He says, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, but the new has come. If you make Jesus the king of your life, you can become new. You can be forgiven. You can get a new heart. Just as Jesus changed everything in that first century world, if you invite him into your heart, he will change everything. He is the king you need. Jesus being good news means that you don't have to look for good news anywhere else. You don't have to seek out worldly solutions for eternal problems. Like Caesar, we're often trying to pretend we have access to gospel through worldly means, but we know deep down that every attempt we've tried fails. The good news is not that we can figure out stuff for ourselves. The good news is not you know, finding ourselves or fulfilling our dreams. The good news is not our vision for the world coming to pass. The good news is not us getting enough money or finding the right spouse or raising our kids well or getting the right job. The good news is not found through earthly means. The good news is that a carpenter from Nazareth has come. He's died, he's risen, and he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as the rightful Messiah and Son of God. The good news is that the King has come. And through the work of Jesus, God has begun setting the world right. Finally, Jesus being Messiah and Son of God means that you don't have to be the master of your own life anymore. You and I have failed at being the kings and queens of our own lives. We failed at running the show. I think about, I'm laughing because I think about the ways that I try to be the king of my life and I stink at it. We've been told our whole lives that if If we work hard enough, if we do the right things, we can make this world our own personal heaven. But the reality is you can't do it. This world can never be what you want it to be, no matter how hard you try. It can never be what you want it to be. No amount of effort or maneuvering can make this world what God wants it to be. The only way that you can find peace, love, and joy, the only way that you can step into the life that you were made for is if you let Jesus be king of your hearts and your life. So let's ask him to be king today in each of our lives and in this church. I don't believe this is just a personal thing. I believe it's a corporate thing. I believe God, I I said this on Thursday night during the midweek service. I believe that God is calling us into a season as a church to be a church that is set apart for God, that's consecrated is the churchy word for it, to be wholly set apart. And like our main desire is serving Jesus. Our main desire is pleasing him, not pleasing man, pleasing him. Let's pray. Let's stand to our feet now. We're going to pray in just a minute that that Jesus would be king. As we look ahead, 
at all that Mark is going to have for us. We're faced again with the opening line of Mark 1.1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're about to journey through how God made restoration possible through his son, Jesus. And as we prepare to head on this journey, I want to give you two ways to respond this morning. Okay, the first way is for those of you who already follow Jesus, because you're already following him. You've already made him the king of your life. I want to give you a chance to double down on your commitment this morning. I want to give you a chance to declare once more that Jesus is king. Again, during the midweek service, I was at the altar praying and And there was a moment where the sermon, sometimes sermons are in my head, but they're not in my heart yet. Something supernatural happened where I just kept saying, Jesus, you are king. And I kept saying, I bow to you, Jesus. I bow to you. I bow. I just kept saying that over and over again. And it began to become real to me. And I know as a Christian, we oftentimes can, you know, say Jesus is king, but we don't really live like it. We don't really feel it. We don't really walk in it. And this morning, I want to give you a chance for those who have already said yes to Jesus to double down on that commitment. So if every head would be bowed across this room, every eye closed, I... I want to make this a holy moment between you and Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are king, or saying, Jesus, I bow at your feet. You are master of my life. So what I want you to do, if that's you, I just slip up a hand to heaven right now, just so I see who I'm praying for. Okay, there's tons of hands going up. I just want to pray that this would be true, not just something we say, but true in our lives. That sent church would be a place where we truly make Jesus king. So let's pray. Jesus, right now, we are doubling down. Jesus, as we look back to... Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and see how dangerous these words were. God, today we double down. In a culture where it's it's relatively easy to follow Jesus, we double down and we say that Jesus is king of our lives. Jesus is king of our hearts. So Jesus, I pray that that would be true, not just something we say, but true through everything we do, through the way we treat people, through the way we relate to you, through the way we love you. I pray that that would be true in Jesus' name. All right, one more way to respond this morning. If you came in this morning and, and you don't follow Jesus yet, I want to give you a chance to do that. Just as these early disciples would leave everything to follow Jesus, I want to give you a chance to say, I want to follow Jesus this morning. I want to give you a chance to realize that he is the king you need. That if you invite Jesus into your heart, you will truly step into the life you were made for. That doesn't mean everything will be perfect, but it will mean that you find your home in God. So if every head would be bowed again, every eye closed, if you're here today and you're not following Jesus or you once did and you walked away from that, I want to give you a chance to to recommit to him today or to commit to him for the first time. And all I'm going to have you do again is slip up your hand to heaven just like we did with the other group. And then I'm going to pray for you. So I'm going to count to three. When I get there, just raise your hand to heaven. One, two, three. Something up all across this room. See those hands? Is there anyone else this morning? strong name we pray. Amen.